Oh, hello, people in podcast land. Welcome back. My guest today is none other than Jay Morton, former SAS operator and two-time Everest summitee. Got him on today to talk about his new book, Soldier. Becoming a soldier means dealing with fear, coping with pressure, and performing with excellence. The SAS is the best of the best. And today, we learn the key lessons from Jay's 14-year career. So expect to learn how humor can help with fear, whether climbing Everest is harder than the SAS selection process, the coolest operation Jay was a part of, how to take advantage of opportunity like a soldier, and much more. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern But for now it's time for the wise and wonderful Jay Morton Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. I'm joined by Jay Morton. Jay, welcome to the show. How's it going, Chris? You good? Very well. I'm in Dubai. How could I not be well? I do need to hold my hands up for everyone that is watching on YouTube. Yes, I'm wearing a vest. Yes, I caught a little bit of sun today. Tiny little bit, just a bit flush, right? But I haven't seen sunshine for like six months. So give me a break. I've also got you currently, Jay. You're balanced on an upturned bin uh, in my hotel room. And I'm doing this after tethering to my phone on roaming data. So God knows how much this is going to cost, but it's more than worth it. So thank you very much for coming on, man. Too easy. Yeah. You never see what's in the background, do you, of what you've got. I've Chaos. done it the same, man, where you've just got to balance your phone and, and whatever's going on in the background. So Absolute yeah. Chaos, mate. It's just a And you're a northerner too. You're a, you're a fellow northerner. So don't do well in the sun. Look, I, I've got two ginger parents, but thankfully I don't think I fully inherited their skin. But you're totally right, man. When you're from Winterfell, you, you don't tan, don't tan exactly. massively well. You, just, you go white. You just seem to go white. Yeah. That leads me quite nicely into talking about the temperature, leads me quite nicely into something I wanted to ask, which is which is more difficult, the selection process for special forces or climbing Everest twice? Um, I'd have to say climbing Everest. Um selection you know six month SAS selection just seems to it's drawn out over six months right and when you start you're already a you're already a, a seasoned soldier like for me i've done one tour of iraq and two tours of afghanistan so you almost get to that stage where you 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 want to prove yourself as as a soldier and i was you know 24 years old like full of testosterone um so like you go on selection with a, a bunch of other lads and you're all you know, you've got this unified kind of cause that you're all trying to, that you're all going for at the same time. Um, and I actually enjoyed selection for that reason. Um, Cause you meet, you know, you you end up all, all, you know, you start with maybe 150, 170 people. Um, after the first three weeks, you kind of down to 50. And then after the next six weeks, you, you kind of down to maybe 20, 25 people. And these 20, 25 people have been through, through absolute shit. So you end up forming this like super tight bond where you're all really close and, and all really clicky. And then you get to the end of selection after that six months, you get given your stable belt and your beret and you get like a picture tuck uh, next to the clock tower. You shake everyone's hand and then you disappear into whatever regiment and squadrons that you go to. Uh, and then the next day, you kind of big boys rules into the into the mix, thrown into the lion's den. 
Yeah, and I remember I remember turning up day one and like I was 24, like it's quite a young age to pass selection. And um, like the rest of the guys in my troop were all kind of, I mean, some of them were touching 40 years old. So as a 24-year-old turning, into the, turning up into this, this SAS troop with a load of 40-year-olds, even like the guy who came in two years before me, he was like, you know, two, three years ahead of me. And uh, like they're all like big guys, like big kind of, Men with like gray hair and stuff, and yeah, big hands, quite massive in- hands, massive hands. Like <laughs> you know, we had Billy was one of our um, one of our senior sergeants at the time, and you know he was like a you know ex ex kind of football hooligan from London, and just covered in like skull tattoos and <laughs> and uh, like flames up his arm and stuff. very welcoming. And to- Turns like yeah, we we actually went to to Norway on our first exercise, and I ended up spending it spending the whole uh, six weeks living in a tent with him. So we uh, we got on quite well. Very cozy after a I while, did, yeah. Yeah, as it turns out, he was the nicest guy there. That's awesome, man. Yeah, and how does that relate to Everest then? Yeah, so like Everest is Everest is like quite a big. It's a big misconception for some people. Um, cause a lot of people think that because of the amount of people that go up and, and the caliber of people that go up, it's an easy thing to do. And coming from someone who's done a lot of difficult things in their life, Everest is by no means an easy feat. It just seems to attract people who can afford it because it comes with a very high price tag. Mm. So it kind of attracts a certain caliber of people, mm. um, and you do end up with a lot of a lot of dross on the mountain, which doesn't give it a very uh, good reputation. But Everest is more. It's six weeks of living at altitude. So if you think like altitude, just basically takes away energy from you. So if you stand up and walk ten meters at sea level, it's fine, right? You don't think about it. But if you're a you know, six, 7,000 meters in the sky and you stand up and walk 10 meters, you know, you're taking a couple of steps, stopping, breathing, taking a couple of steps, stopping, breathing. So like everything that you deemed easy at sea level is magnified in difficulty the further up you go to the point of on your summit push when, you know, if you think of your summit push, it's, it's quite just to give a picture of, of kind of the severity of it, you do like an acclim- you, you get up to base camp, you do an acclimatization, which takes five days or, or six days. You come back down, you rest at base camp, which is at 5,600 meters. And then you kind of sit there and look at the, the weather windows. Um, and you get, you always get one weather window to summit, which is clear skies, you know, a minimal winds. You sometimes get two weather windows and you rarely get three. So it's this balance of you know, all your weather weather systems and speaking to like people around the camps and finding out what's going on. Because like you've invested all this time, right? You've invested like the last three weeks of living at altitude, eating shit food, um, you know, shitting into a hole in the ground every morning. A frozen, a frozen a hole in the ground. Fro- like you it's like clockwork every morning and you know your only entertainment is the game of cards that you play at night in the tent and you, by this time you're sick of lunch and meat and rice um so you invested all this energy and time into making the right decision and getting to the you know getting high up and summiting in the in the right weather window because if you don't that's it you know you, you only get one shot at summiting and um you kind of set off at camp three on your summit push so you'll leave camp three, which is 7,000 meters. Um, and there's four camps till summit. So you go camp three, 7,000 meters, leave there at 5 a.m. on oxygen. You climb up to camp four, arrive at camp four, say 4 p.m. So that's a full day to get there. Camp four is 8,000 meters. So you rest there in a tent for, you know, six hours. You try and get some sleep. You, you get some hot water on. You cook some food. Um, and then you leave that night at 8 p.m. to summit for first light. So, you know, 6 a.m., 7 a.m. in the morning. And then you've got all that day to come all the way back down to camp two, which you get to camp two at, say, 
like I got there about 9 p.m. So it's a 15 hour day at ridiculous altitude. Yeah. So you start 5 a.m. It's like two days, basically, just constantly with no sleep, minimal water Um, at that altitude. Your body doesn't work the same. So you don't digest food. Um, So I was literally living off like the little energy sachets that like cyclists and, and triathletes and that use, which obviously then, you know, ended up with that just all over my hands, just like sticky and it just leaks out into your pocket. So every time you put your hand in your pocket, your hand gets stuck. Um, you not drinking as much water just because you're constantly needing to move and kind of beyond camp four up to the summit, it, it's you, your body's kind of that drained and tired and exhausted it's simply just that one foot in front of the other that slow kind of monotonous like tap 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 and then you kind of you just see everyone doing it everyone kind of puts their arm like their their elbows on the the legs and like because you're on like a steep hill and just just gives it like a few couple of puffs of breath and just composes themselves before they, they set off again um and then you get to the top and then coming down is even worse because it's steep ground. And then you've got this this mass of people that are coming down at the same time. So, you, you know, you're trying to work your way through all these people for like the next, for the next 17. So you summit at 6 a.m. I'm, not, I'm no good at math. Summit at 6 a.m., get back down for 10 p.m. So what's that? 16, 14 hours of walking downhill where your toes are just hitting the front of your boots for 14 hours to the point you, you know, you start walking sideways and then you change <laughs> to the other side and then you yeah. start walking backwards. backwards yeah. yeah. You just like, like I've been exhausted and tired and like fatigued and so many times in like my military career, but like you're never that fatigued and exhausted that, that you are on Everest it seems like a big part of that is the camaraderie that you had in the support structure from when you were doing special forces selection, I guess as well, like if you've in thin air and it's really cold and you're on a thin ridge, it's like, first off you spread out second, you've got to save your breath to be able to focus on the few bodily functions that your physiology is still able to do. Uh, whereas, as you said, during your special, special forces, you're, you're really able, you've got this sort of, unity that that binds you all together and makes maybe the suffering a, a little bit less uh solo yeah a little bit i think you know for a start you're at sea level so that makes things way easier um yeah like you, i guess when you're at sea level and you're doing the things that you're doing in the special forces you always know where the end is and the end's usually quite comfortable so say you're deploying an operation that is anything from you know, 10 hours, 12 hours on a night raid, or you go out for a week and live in a building and, and put an OP in or whatever it is. And you always know at the end of that, you take enough food, you take enough water, you know, you, you're warm, you've taken enough, um, you know, sleeping equipment or uh, enough jackets and warm clothing that you're going to be, you're going to be semi comfortable, right? There might be a little bit of hardship. You might be walking in with some, some weight and some kit, you do the job, you extract or whatever it is. Um, but you know, at the end of that week, unless the job or mission changes, you're going to come back to base or wherever it is that you you live, whether you're in the UK, you come back, you're probably you know, having beers with the boys at the weekend or whatever. Or if it's if you're overseas, you know, you're coming back to a camp, you're de-kitting, you're going for steak and eggs in the morning, you're going to get back in the gym. Um, whereas like on Everest, it's like, you set off on that summit window and, and that rotation on that summit window is seven days. So you leave base camp. <laughs> <laughs> you leave you leave base camp with a rucksack and you come back in seven days with that same rucksack. And um and you you, you know you're not coming back to steak and eggs and beers with the boys and a warm shower. You're literally I mean you know you come back to a, a hot water, you know, hot bucket of water and a a little bit of leftover like shampoo that you took. A slightly bigger, slightly bigger hole in the ground to have a poop in. Yeah. Well, everyone's just been like filling it in whilst you've been gone. So it's like overflowing. Oh no, 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 no. (laughs) Please make it stop. 
Oh, it's man. not like that hotel room in Dubai, I tell you. This okay. is, it's, it is lovely out here. Yeah. So we're talking about your new book today, which will be out mm. when this episode is live. What does respect is earned mean? Um, so kind of the book is just, you know, it's it's to just say like, this is my 14 years of military experience in the special forces and the paras. And I've just put all that knowledge and experience into the book. And it's it's essentially that, right? It's read this book and respect is earned. It's like, do the hard stuff through my military career. And it's like, that is how you gain respect. I understand. Let's go through the four tenets of the special forces. I thought this was really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so you've got relentless pursuit for excellence. Um, so that is, you know, if you think of like values that you live your life by the special forces has those and first one's relentless pursuit of excellence. And, you know, it should be something that we should be searching for every day within the special forces, whether it's whatever we're doing, whether it's shooting, we're always trying to get better at shooting, whether it's, you know, surveillance, OPs, whatever it is that we're doing, we need to always be searching for that level of excellence. And like, obviously you never get to that level, you know, you never get to that level that is excellence, but that constant progression of just keep chipping away at whatever it is you're doing, whether it's in the gym, whether it's at home, whether it's whatever it is to just be a, a better human being and, and better in the job that you're doing. And that's kind of the first one. Uh, the second one is uh, honor and humility. So um, kind of humility is a massive one in the, in the special forces. Um, you know, it's, I mean, even like I, I remember bumping into a load of uh, SBS lads when I was in the paras. And the first thing that came across was, you know, you had these, these guys, they were, they were men, they were like 40 odd years old, like big dudes and that, but they were like the soundest guys ever. And they came and found us, looked after us and we played volleyball and they bought us a load of beers. And, um, do you know, just that it doesn't matter what you do in your career and where you've been. It's like, you still have that humble approach, which will keep you hungry and will keep you always wanting to improve. And then honor is, you know, as it says, it's, it's having honor in what you do and honor of the people that you work with and honor of the job that you're doing. Um, and then discipline, discipline goes without saying, um, it is, you know, it's one of the most important things that a soldier needs to have is discipline you know, it's it's no um, hidden secret that, you know, soldiers are people that, or if you're on a job or on a, a task, you, you're getting up early, you're doing things that aren't necessarily comfortable things to do um, or aren't very natural things to do. Um, and that requires a lot of discipline, a lot of self-discipline um, to be, you know, to, to be that that best cohesive team unit that you can be. Um, and I've had a mind slip. What's the fourth one? <laughs> I haven't got them written down, mate. So we, we can leave it at three. We can leave it at three. I'm trying to think. What is the fourth one? What is the fourth one? There is. Yeah, we'll leave it at three. Three it is now. We can That's come fine. back to it. The fourth one's obviously not that yeah. important. Uh, they, I also, they've changed it. Yeah, they've changed, this is the new, this is the Jay Morton version of the, the four tenants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't realise that the SAS was split up into four squadrons with four troops within each. Can you just take us through how this works and the, the personalities that you explain about that? Um, yeah, so you've got kind of different teams within um, the, any special forces unit. Um, and then those teams are, are broken down into, into individual skill sets. Um, and kind of the skill sets are um, air, so anything that is... Um, in the air, so helicopters, mainly kind of uh, parachuting and being a subject matter expert in, in parachuting, um, boats, anything that's, that's to do with water, um, and then you've got mobility, which is land vehicles, so motorbikes, quads, off-road vehicles, 4 by 4s all that kind of stuff, and then you've got mountain, which is what I was, which is anything to do with the mountains. Um, so above the snow line, so you've got kind of Arctic warfare and, you know, stuff in kind of, you know, the Scandinavian countries, that kind of stuff. And then that kind of filters over into kind of a, a more like a rope work kind of, um, 
like a rope access kind of thing to try and not put too much detail on it, if that makes sense. To try and keep it as bland as possible as, as that, that yeah, sits. I understand. What's the coolest operation that you can tell us about? Um, do you know, like, I don't, I don't know, like coolest is probably like the, not, not the word I'd use, but like the, the, there's a few that really stick out um, and a few things that I, I kind of ticked off whilst I was serving that, again, I can't, I can't talk about. But um, there was one one job on a on an IED factory. It was it was a daytime raid on a night. So an IED is an improvised explosive device. Um, so it's it's like a homemade bomb that the um, the enemy would use against us. So um, it could be anything. So it would be anything that is homemade, and they you know the, the the main way of using it would be sticking it in a in the ground, covering it with dirt. You walk over it, it blows up. Um, and we hit a factory that was, that was making these on a, on a mass scale. Um, I kind of don't, I kind of don't want to go too much into the detail about Chris cause it's, um, I understand we basically you, had, operational yeah, we basically secrecy. Had, yeah. Yeah. We, we, we basically had nine guys on it and, um, it was anything, it, it, it almost reminded me of like a crazy Western movie. Um, when we kind of landed the helicopters, uh, next to the compound and um i was with a, a team of afghans and we we come running off the back of this helicopter and a few of the few of the guys from the factory just like legged it from the factory <laughs> and um they took their chances and just like ran and um <laughs> i was like first man out there was only like i think there was only a few of us um a few of us uh british and um these afghans just started firing over my head and I literally just, I could feel like bullets just whizzing past me. <laughs> I literally just, literally turned around and just said, stop firing, stop firing. <laughs> <laughs> you just shoot one of us. <laughs> it was, it was like a, a crazy Western film. Um, but no, that was, do, do you know what? That sticks out as one of the, one of the, one of the best jobs I, I did. Probably because the impact it had on, on the local area in terms of, you know, the IED, the numbers of IEDs that were hitting British troops that were operating in the area went substantially down. Um, and we got, you know, nine of the, the guys that were making these um, IEDs at the same time. So that for me sticks out massively. There's a few others that I won't go into too much detail about. Yeah, um, I understand. The, MO, the MOD wouldn't be happy, but that it's so cool to see where um, when the special forces are deployed to cut off at the knees an operation which obviously down the line will be hurting local Afghans. It will be meant to attack other British forces and and other foreign sort of forces that are out there. So yeah, I can totally see why that would be something that you'd be proud of. Another one, again, <laughs> this might be an MOD dance around. When were you the most scared during your service? Is there anything that comes to mind which you can tell us about? Um, probably when those uh, bullets are flying. Past me. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> um, did you know what? Like, fears like one of those weird. Fears like one of those weird things when you when you're operating in that kind of environment, um, and it like it can it can come and go at like the most randomest of times, and and you generally, you know, you go overseas for six months at a time, and you know after after a while, you almost you almost you, you change how you deal with things in your own head. You find like ways of just coping with whatever's going on. And I'd, I don't mean that in a negative way. If, if anything, it's a positive way. Um, but you kind of just like fear doesn't really appear as much as I don't know. You go, you, you could go through like a, cause like soldiers are really good at coping with fear with with humor um and a lot of some of the scariest moments that that i would say are the scariest moments right if you took a normal person through through them in that situation mm. like you, you see to cope very well with it with with a lot of humor and um yeah i can remember kind of a few times when and this was going back to kind of my days in the parachute regiment in three power and you know, I remember one day when we just got opened up on and, you know, you're almost seeing 
you're seeing like rounds hitting like walls and the floor around where where you are and you know whether it's you know the Taliban didn't have their their weapon zero that day or you know something else was looking after you you know you you don't end up with a bullet in you um but you're so close to it um and there's you know there's a, a few situations like that but again it's like you know, we just got you know when that happened we got opened up on in, in you know point blank range we literally just ran around this corner and just all started laughing at each other <laughs> <laughs> and it's, I, I, it's just a, I, I don't know it's like whether there's a lesson there that you know the best way of just dealing with fear is just with humor and it's like you know it's like one of those reactions right of something happens and like people instantly smile and it's like you you know, if you if you look at that situation, you probably shouldn't be smiling, but you, you do. You just you just seem to, to laugh about it. I know. I wonder what it is. I wonder whether fear and humor are somewhere along the same sort of line. But there's a bit of an archetype there, right? You know, the the crazy soldier who is able to laugh off, but it was a scratch. You know, like that kind of like classic stiff upper lip British thing. Yeah, like. Like I've seen some like I've seen lads get shot and they're just laughing and smiling and probably happier than they would be if they hadn't have been shot. What? Like not 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 on impact, right? And you, I might have, you know, because like everything happens quite fast in 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 fight and combat, right? Mm. You generally, you know, if you think how fast a round flies, and as soon as that goes out the gun, it's straight into someone's body, and that's a very quick. Um, situation to happen so then don't have time for fear to evolve so you're thinking like fuck right i'm going to grab this guy drag him into some cover sort him out administer first aid and then we need to we need to extract him extract him back to a a, like a a point where he can be picked up and taken to to um to safety and, and be seen by like a proper medical professional um so like there's no time there for fear to to overcome, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's like, but yeah, I've seen kind of, you know, even even guys that have lost limbs, and I don't mean on, on impact that it's happened, but you know, you've got to be able to to deal with it with humour. And um, I actually remember one incident. Um, I won't go into too much detail about it, but um, one of the guys ended up getting a, a shotgun through his knee um, by accident. And um, like ruined him, like probably, you know, you know, made a mess of this guy's career. And um, I remember everyone just started taking the piss out of him. The guy that <laughs> that accidentally discharged the shotgun into this guy's knee. And I remember chatting to him. I, I think we we're in a car driving, driving to London or something. And I was chatting to him and he was like, I thought like, you know, how do you feel about it? Whatever. And he's like, the best thing that, that happened was that people took the piss out of him. He was like, if no one took the piss out of me, then I, I would have felt that I've done something seriously wrong. But because everyone's just took the piss out of me and like made jokes and sent out, you know, memes and, and pictures on, um, on WhatsApp groups. Like I feel, I just feel like better about the whole situation. There's a, uh examples similar to that that I had with Seth Godin so I was recording with him a couple of weeks ago and similar to today with you just having a nightmare with connections he needed to change his and I needed to change mine and we're on a really tight time schedule as well and he did he had made such a classy move when we came back on so after all of the connections had gone out and then we we logged back onto the call and we were about to get going when we first called him before he even said hello is everything sorted or anything he just told me a joke like a really shit dad joke, like awful, <laughs> awful, like totally terrible. But any any tension between me and a 20 times best-selling author and marketing Hall of Fame member, yeah. Seth Godin, this absolute yeah. titan of, of internet fame, was gone in a second. So I definitely think yeah. that there's, there's an interesting lesson to take away from that, like the use that humor has for all of us, especially to dissuade pressure and tension and and fear you know before someone's about to go on stage to give a good speech a big speech or before you're about to go and uh, do a pitch or a job interview or perform or do, you know do anything i i think that there's definitely an argument to be made that if you've got a couple of 
shit jokes in your pocket that you can just deploy on demand, I reckon that they would be really useful. But it's it's so true, right? And it, you know, they do they do say that like the, the cleverest people have the highest IQs. Oh, no, sorry, the the funniest people. There's a there's a correlation between like clever people and and funny funny people. people. Absolutely, um, that's why I'm not there. But um, <laughs> but yeah, there is. There's 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 definitely because like we're all the same person, right? We all eat. We all shit. We all do all that stuff and. You get, I don't know, you build that perception it's like you might have had with Seth. Um, you, you put them on, you put people like that on a pedestal and it's like, it's like we're all just the same person and, you know, we can all tell a shit dad joke. <laughs> <laughs> my dad, my dad absolutely can. Okay, so the book's, the book's called Soldier and that's a, an acronym for a bunch of, bunch of things that go underneath it. The first one being self and you call discipline the first effective habit. Have you got any tips on how people can cultivate their discipline? Obviously, we're in the middle, in the UK at least, of a, a brand new lockdown and people may be thinking this is a time where I can either let my habits go one of two ways. What can people do to cultivate that discipline? Yeah, like it's quite important now, right, during the second lockdown phase that, like, I, I, you know, I, I had this thought during the first lockdown phase that, like, I'm not going to let this time just waste, just waste away and slip out under me and, and you know, all I can say that I've done done during lockdown was watch some Netflix documentaries and and um, and box sets, and and that's it. Um, and it's like important that people just focus on on like what's important to them, and you know, just without just going too without digressing too far off that discipline thing. Um, I just said like last lockdown, I want to improve my fitness, my education, and my family, and like fitness is is pretty simple right you, you know you do whatever exercise routine you go for a run you pick up something that you're going to get better at um education it was like right i'm going to learn some new stuff i started trying to play play the guitar um started listening to more podcasts audiobooks started reading started researching stuff that i'm interested in and then family was like right speak to my family more often make sure that they're safe um speak to a friend at least one once a day like chat to people that because you get off that conversation, you feel better. For you, you feel better than you did when you went on. Um, but yeah, like discipline, uh, going back to discipline, it's, you know, like I think I always say it's like your choice to be more disciplined. Um, and you can, you, can, you can read books and you can listen to podcasts, podcasts and stuff for motivation, but essentially you've got to make the choice that, that you want more discipline in your life. Um, and once you've made that choice, then you've just got to implement things in that that give you discipline. And that might just be, you know, just setting an alarm clock. You know, if you're off work at the minute and you just don't set an alarm clock and you wake up at nine o'clock, just set that alarm clock for seven or eight or whatever it is and just get up with an alarm clock every day. And then try and make that alarm clock earlier. Like at the minute I'm trying to get up at six, six thirty, because it's starting to get light and just start doing stuff. Like go out for a walk and just commit to going out for a walk. And then, you know, commit to an exercise regime, commit to reading one book every, like every month, just start like trying to set yourself these small tasks. I read in a book once, um, and this guy was trying to talk about discipline and he, he said, you know, one thing he said, just if you put a plate in the, in the, in the, in the, um, in the sink, every time you put a plate in the sink or anything, wash it and just don't leave it there. And it's like these little like hacks or tricks or tips that you do every day build discipline into your life and that those small ones then flow into the bigger ones that you that you need discipline for whether it's training for a marathon whether it's researching for a job interview or or whatever it is these little ones feed into it yeah how you do anything is how you do everything and I love that saying chris one of the one of the things that i used as a little tip for people and it's timely for me to remind everyone who's listening of it again, the best heuristic I found to make sure that you stay on track during lockdown by having a plan is to ask yourself now, what would have had to have happened by the end of lockdown for me to look back on lockdown and consider it a success? Just mm -hmm. after this podcast finishes, like just take a little bit of time and think about it or do it as being Jay continue to chat shit to each other. 
just think like what would have had to have happened by the end of this period for you to look back on it and it be a success. So for me, I have a, a target for the podcast. I want to hit 100,000 subs on YouTube before Christmas. If I do that, and if everything else continues to tick over, I'll be happy. That's one thing. Last time it was like I wanted to build a website and, and start a newsletter and um, record three times a week. Like that was it. Mm-hmm. And it's easy for us to get caught up believing that we should do more, could have done more. When you don't have a tightly defined target, it always feels like you've missed because you're always yeah. going to feel like you could have done more, would have, should have, could have. And like I say, that's, that's, my, that's my best question for everyone who's listening, who's thinking about that. So next, next up is opportunity. And you lay out a three-stage process for opportunities. Would you be able to take us through that? Yeah, so this, the three-stage process is encounter, recognize, and exploit. So encounter is all about putting yourself in that position where you can um, encounter those um, opportunities. So that's like how you've got your life set up, right? Um, for me, you know, the biggest one was going into the military because I put myself in a position where I could experience other things and other experiences. And that, you know, that put me in a position to uh, be around people that had gone on selection and been in the special forces. And and that's when that, you know, although you volunteer for it, it's an opportunity, um, you know, and then the second one is recognized. So, you know, if I think of something in my life, um, so the, the Everest expeditions, right, they came from one, um, you know, encountering that opportunity to recognizing what that opportunity was. Um, and at the time, it was supposed to be a K, an expedition to K2. And, you know, I'm massive on gut feel. If something feels good and it feels like it's going to change my life for the better, then I take that opportunity. Um, but you have to you have to almost, it's like a muscle, right? The more of these opportunities you take and they lead you down these like crazy and different paths, the more you, you're able to recognize them when they, they fall on, you know, on your doorstep. And then it's exploiting them, which is, you know, exactly what it is. It's right. Where can I take this opportunity? Because we all know that when we take opportunities or when we, when we agree to things or whatever it is, they, they always open more doors further down the line. And then those doors open more doors down the line. And before you know it, you know, you've met some other people, you've done some other stuff in your life and you've gone down a completely different path than, what you set out to do. That's one of the things that I've been thinking about recently. Obviously, this little trip that I've taken out to Dubai, um, I decided the the Sunday after the Saturday that lockdown was announced, got a PCR test on the Monday for COVID, packed on the Tuesday and left on the Wednesday. Um, I, I'm not always like a perfect bastion of immediate action, I suppose. Um, you know, we get stuck yeah. in, everyone gets stuck in ruts and I'm I'm no different. Um, but that single decision, the opportunity for me to be able to get away before lockdown came in and then the single time commitment has had multiple downstream changes. Like it's literally the difference between me being here with it being like 9 PM at night in 30 degree heat off on a yacht party tomorrow on the biggest yacht in Dubai or me being in the UK and doing the life that I had there. And I love the life that I have in the UK and it's very productive, but I've done it all this year. So yes, recognizing opportunities and I think committing to them, the, the, the exploit part is is really important. A lot of people will see something and not realize that it is an opportunity uh, or not decide to commit to it. And it's trite to say it, but it's very true that we often... I would say that more of our regrets certainly lean toward things that we chose not to do rather than things that we chose to do. It, it, we as creatures err on the side of stagnation. I think naturally yeah, our, 100%. Our, our tendency is to the status quo. Uh, I'm, I'm scared about that new cave next door. I'm scared about that new bush over there. I'm scared about that new tribe in the next valley. And you just roll that forward to the 21st century when we really don't have anything to be afraid of. I like COVID and and like mad political elections and stuff like that. But really, day to day, your safety, the water, the heat of being somewhere sheltered, all that sort of stuff, all of those fears have gone and they've become that uh, worry around new experiences has been transmuted 
into people being concerned about all manner of small things that really don't matter. You know, think about like anyone's slightly anxious mum. It's like that person, like, oh, have you got your coat on? Have you got your gloves on? Have you got, the, you know, th- that kind of approach, I think is just a, a, a maladapted evolutionary uh, uh, heritage coming through. Yeah, but like, <clears throat> you know, that's the, that's like a, a lot of people, right, in the world. And it's, do you know, that whole like wrapping people up in cotton wool and, um, do you know, even just, you know, we all live, like you said, right, we all live in these buildings, these four walls. Like we we don't know what it feels like to feel rain on our face at nighttime or, or be cold. Like we're rarely cold as human beings, right? Like we rarely have to walk long distances or fend for our own food. And, and, and you know, it's like it, it all creates a softer human being. And, and it's almost like what you're seeing now as a result is people get so offended because they've got almost this free time to become offended by some, by things. Whereas, you know, like if you had to fend for your food and get all this kind of stuff, it's like, it's like you wouldn't have that, that, that time available to be able to do that kind of stuff. Massively so, man. I realized this at the beginning of the first lockdown when, when COVID came about. Um, in the absence of a real crisis, we create our own. And in the presence of a real crisis, we recenter our priorities. The fact that when everything's so comfortable and all of our problems are problems of surplus, not problems of scarcity at the moment. So think about the fact yeah. that we have too much information, too much food, too much uh, um, spare time even to concern ourselves with this stuff. And all of those problems are now causing stuff, diabetes, people being overweight, technology addiction, so on and so forth. And yeah, we're, we're maladapted to the environment and it's increasingly why you see people going back to a more paleolithic style of life. You know, people that choose the minimalist movement now is a 21st century uh, hark back to people trying to reduce the amount of clutter that's in their lives, trying to reduce that amount of surplus. So yeah, it's... Um, well, it's, you've only got to look at like the amount of people that are entering Ironman, like Ironmans and ultra triathlons and that kind of stuff these days. Because, like, the human body needs suffering. Like, it, it needs it needs some kind of suffering because we've had it all our life, right? And you take all that suffering away and making an, make an easy life for yourself, and you know everything's at the, at the touch of a button and everything's so easily accessible. It's it's not. You know, that's why that's why you see like depression and suicide at such a high rate, because people just don't know how to suffer anymore. That's an interesting that's an interesting insight on it. I, I think that you you're probably correct there. That voluntary exposure to gradually increasing levels of discomfort will make you more tolerant to it over time. Um there's a really interesting study that they did on children, uh, babies, infants. Um so I think that if you are a child who has, I want to say eczema um, mm-hmm. or some other skin condition, you are also predisposed to having peanut allergy. Uh, I think that oh, it's, really? it's, it's one of the it's one of the highlights, right? So what they did was they yeah. they took children who had the eczema uh, particular problem and voluntarily split them into two different groups. Group one was allowed to have rice puffs that had a very very slight peanut coating dusting on them and the Mm -hmm. other the other group was kept free of nuts the argument is that most parents that learn about eczema would hear that if your child has eczema there is a increased risk of them being allergic to peanuts therefore they will keep them away from absolutely everything that may have nuts in it and what they did was they tracked these children over time and the end result of the study was that the children who had been voluntarily exposed to the peanuts had a 25% peanut allergy. And the children who had been kept free of all of the peanut dust had a 75% peanut allergy. Yeah, it's wacky. It's crazy, man. It's you know, crazy. Voluntarily exposing yourself to things that are going to be difficult. Like, why, why are people doing cold showers at the moment? It's mm. the, the ultimate doing something just because it hurts. There's some physiological adaptations which are good and you get a bit of a buzz off it. It's like having a big a big fat cup of coffee that lasts for about 20 minutes, which is nice. 
But for yeah. the, mo- the most part, it's people avoiding that flinch. You know, like, why are you scared of getting in the cold shower? Like, really, why are you scared? And it's a very interesting mm. uh, internal battle to watch yourself go through. Because you know it's going to be cold, but it's not going to kill you. It's not even going to hurt you. Yeah. It's just going to be a little bit uncomfortable. So, yeah, I think uh, that's definitely something that I would, um, I would try and encourage in as many people as I can. So we've got, we've got the word soldier, self-opportunity, leadership, danger, intelligence, excellence, and resilience. Out of the ones that we got left, which one's your favorite? Can we go into that one? So I think I would say... Call me off guard. Do you know what? Like, I'd say probably my favorite self. More so because I'm quite... I can get quite deep on myself and um, I'm quite interested by human psychology and how we all fit into the world and um, like being able to pull out your true potential and, and understand where like people fit into teams and that, that, that we're not all different. Um, and in the book, I, I talk about personality testing um, in specific, the Myers-Briggs personality testing and you know, it's something that everyone should go and do just to find out, just to find out what their personality type is. Because I think a lot of people just float through the universe, just not diving deep on on what kind of person they actually are. So when you actually do a test and, and get a result, it's it's a more you kind of it gives you a more realization of, of what you're actually like. Yeah, I think it's quite uncomfortable for a lot of people to do self-reflection, especially if you're not used to it. And I, I get that. I would probably guess that a lot of the people who are listening skew towards a very different sort of <laughs> type of person. They're going to be incredibly uh, introspective. They're going to do a lot of self-inquiry just because of the the sort of guests that I have on. But I there is no amount of money on the planet that you could pay me to stop thinking about my internal monologue. Like it's the single, the single most fascinating thing that I do. Um, Yeah. Agreed. I love working out motivations and I do it in other people as well. And when you get to a particular level of competence with yourself, you're able to help other people. And that, that feels really, really good. You know, that you, you kind of, kind of like you were talking before about voluntary discomfort. So, Okay. I'm going to go through a little bit of discomfort thinking about some stuff that happened in my past that I don't like or thinking about a, a thing that I really wish that I, a attribute I wish I didn't have, whatever. And after you work through that and you realize that it didn't kill you, you can then help other people around you to do it. Um, it's really, it's a beautiful use of time, man. I think, I think that's a good shout. Yeah, definitely. Like what I, what I really love doing on myself is trying to understand why I make decisions or why I do certain things and just going like just doing the deep dive and, and trying to understand like why I'm so hell bent on being like fit and healthy and a psychopath like that goes up to the top of Everest twice. Yeah. Like, like things like that. Like what is like, what is my absolute reason for doing that? And there's probably a, a load of different reasons, but I kind of, I quite enjoy having a very, um, objective or pulled out point of view of everything and just try and even observe other people and just be like, right, like why, why do, why does, why does so many people sit in front of the TV and listen to the news and listen to the media and like live on it every word as, as though that's the truth. And, um, you know, just try and have a very abstract point of view on absolutely everything that goes on through the, through myself and through, through the world. Yeah, I think uh, the rationalist movement, which is going on at the moment, uh, lesswrong.com and the Slate Star Codex that I'm a massive fan of, two, two fantastic blogs. I think that a big part of that is people trying to bring a little bit of order to chaos. Because if you leave your life to be um, guided by the paths of least resistance, you often end up in a place not only that you don't want to be, but that you didn't even mean to get to. You know, like mm-hmm. you, you can very easily live a life that you regret without even realizing that you're walking down the path. And um, Not quite easily, yeah. yeah I, I, that's, quite that's, easily. that's something that everybody should be fearful of. 
you know like the, but we're, all- we're, we're, made, we're made to like live this easy life aren't we like you will see you will search out the easiest way of doing things every time unless you're aware that you're doing those things yeah. So underneath everything, actually, there's a little bit of a source code that people should lean into discomfort wherever they can find it. And the more that you can get used to leaning into it, you know, it, remember as well, the reason that you go to the gym is for the discomfort. The discomfort is a signal that you're doing the thing you're there to do. Mm-hmm. It's not the thing that you're supposed to, oh, this hurts in the gym. Therefore, I'll stop doing it. It's like, no, 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 no. That that is why you're there. So people are used to it, right? You know, Arnie used to talk about the how much he loved the pump. And mm-hmm. in the gym, people are aware that that's why. Okay, I did a thing, and the outcome of that thing was a little bit of discomfort, but that's what I'm chasing because it identifies growth. That yeah, and just the body, needs the body rewards you for that as well, right? Yeah. The body makes you feel good with endorphins. That just needs mapping onto other areas of life. I had Ali yeah. Abdal on yeah. not long ago. Who's a, a YouTuber that focuses on learning and productivity. And he nailed it. He was like, learning is supposed to be hard. If it's not difficult, you're not learning. Yeah, Exactly the same as the gym. And the same thing goes for everything. So yeah, I think, I definitely think there's a unifying thread across a lot of other stuff. Now, last question for you, man. What is the biggest insight that you wish more people knew about life? I think we just covered it. That one, discomfort. Just, yeah, just just search out difficult things and the reward you, you you know, you'll soon get the reward that it brings you. I love that. I love that. And I agree as well. So soldier will be linked in the show notes below. If people want to check you out to go and see some other stuff about you, where should they go, Jay? Uh, So mainly Instagram. uh, So it's J double underscore Morton. Uh, Also on Twitter and Facebook, but probably less active on those two. Uh, and I've got a website as well. Uh, just It's jmortonofficial.com. Fantastic. Everything will be linked in the show notes below. What's next for you then, man? Obviously, final final thing. You've got this period to sit at home and plan some mad adventures. Oh, were well, you doing some race? What's the race? Uh, yeah, so I'm racing for a car team called Praga next year, um, which is, again, like fairly new to me, the whole motorsport thing. So... At the minute, just trying to get as much seat time and as much learning and practice in cars and tracks around the UK as possible. Um, and then, yeah, so I'll start. I think my first race is next March. What's the car? What's the vehicle? It's called a Praga R1. What, so what's... It's, um, it's a, it's a full-aero race car, so you can't buy one and race it on the road. Um, it's, it's strictly a track car, but it's full-aero. So, you know, if you think of F1, F1's got an aero system which means that the faster you drive it, the more it sticks to the ground. Um, so this is the same in this car. The faster you drive it, the more grip you produce. Um, it's got a 350 brake horsepower Renault turbo engine in, and it weighs 600, 600 kg. Shit the bed. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a machine. Uh, it's like a little, little single cockpit, um, like a little single cockpit car. Kind of looks like a smaller Le Mans car. It's like a rocket ship that's had wheels attached to it. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) All right, man. Well, look, good luck with that. Uh, I hope that you have a very good lockdown and uh, thank you so much for your time. Cheers, Chris. Take care.